morning. I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. I do want to thank all the people who came to the bonfire last night. We had a really great turnout. We had a lot of fun, a lot of really good food. I really want to thank all the people who put a lot of time and a lot of effort into it, uh, especially people like Linda Ayton. Um, so big thanks to her. It was a blast. And if you couldn't come to that, if you couldn't come to that last night, uh, like I said, that was a great opportunity to get to know people, get to meet people. But if you didn't come to that, another great way to do that would be to get involved in a small group. Great way to get to know people. Great way to make friends that can encourage you, hold you accountable, uh, be a good resource for you as you are striving to grow in your walk with Christ, as you read scripture together. Um, If you're looking for ways to get connected, that's one of the first things I would recommend for you to do. So if you're interested in joining a small group, most of them have just started back up here in the last few weeks. So feel free to talk to Mike Davidson. He can help you with that. Any of the other elders can help you with that. I could help you with that. Jeff could. Nancy could. Pretty much anybody could. So if you'd like to get involved in a small group, talk to one of those people. But if this is also your first week here, we are in the second week of a seven-week series going through the book of Nehemiah. And we've talked about how Nehemiah is one of those books that it's really important that you understand the historical background of the book if you're going to have any clue what's happening in the book itself. And so we talked about that a little bit last week. I want to quickly recap that. I want to make sure that you get this drilled into your heads throughout this Nehemiah series. It all goes back to 586 B.C. when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Jerusalem, comes in. He tears down the temple. He tears down the walls. He takes all the sacred relics out of the temple and grabs them, takes them back to Babylon. A lot of the people who are living in Jerusalem, the people who have skills, the people who have talents, people who can contribute, people who are educated, they are dragged to Babylon as well to contribute to the Babylonian culture. And as they're there, the people who are left behind really have little skill, little ability, and very few resources to rebuild the city. Meanwhile, those who have been taken away are forced to change their names often. They're forced to change their religious practices The Babylonians are hoping that they can truly make it as if the Israelites never even existed. Wipe these people off the map. Get rid of any shred of evidence of their culture, of their practices, anything. So the Israelites are suffering in Babylon during this time. But that doesn't last forever. Because in 539 BC, Persia comes in, led by King Cyrus. And Cyrus has a much different understanding of how you run an empire than Nebuchadnezzar does. Cyrus views it as, you know, if you want to grow your empire, if you want to expand your empire, you have to keep your subjects happy. That way they won't start a rebellion. That way they won't start an uprising. And so Cyrus says, you know, guys, go back to your homes, practice what you want to practice, rediscover your heritage, rediscover your culture, your traditions. And if you do that, if we give you this freedom, don't rise up against us. And typically the subjects don't rise up against them. That way Cyrus can focus on expanding the empire. So many people return to Jerusalem. Now in 516 BC, the temple is rebuilt. And that would have been a huge deal because for 70 years, the proper sacrifices hadn't been happening. The proper rituals, the proper laws had not really been practiced because for many of them, you have to have a temple to do them. So the people are celebrating that they finally have this temple, that Ezra was able to help them rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But there's one problem. Everything else is still pretty much torn down, especially the walls and the gates. 
And so you have this beautiful temple in Jerusalem, God's city, but it's completely left exposed to enemies around it, to the elements, to all kinds of dangers. And then we fast forward to 445 B.C., and that's when Nehemiah comes on the scene. And Nehemiah hears that the city of Jerusalem is still looking pretty bad, that the walls are still torn down, the gates are still torn down, and Nehemiah mourns over this. He weeps over this, because this is supposed to be God's city, the city that gives glory to God, and yet it's lying in ruins. So, for four months, Nehemiah prays, Nehemiah fasts, and then he approaches the king that he's serving in Susa. He approaches the king and he asks the king's permission to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls and the gates specifically. And luckily, over the years, Nehemiah had gained some credibility with the king. He had gained a hearing with the king. And the king says, you know what? Okay, I'll let you go back. I'll let you go rebuild Jerusalem. So Nehemiah gets all the proper paperwork. He gets all the proper authorization to start this project. He has a plan. He makes sure that he has all the proper supplies ready to go. And he returns to Jerusalem. But when he gets there, he plays his cards pretty close to the vest. He doesn't really tell people right away what his plan is. He examines the walls. Under the cover of night, he rides around the city trying to find out where the weak spots are, where the worst piles of rubble lie. And then he proposes his plan to the people. He says, you know, I think we need to rebuild these walls and these gates. And some people hear it and they're like, yeah, you bet we do. The city of God is lying in ruin. We can't possibly let it stay this way. But then there are other people who hear Nehemiah's plan, guys like Sanballat, guys like Tobiah, guys like Geshem, enemies of Jerusalem. And they're thinking, you know, we don't really like this plan. Because for a long time, you guys were on top, and we've kind of enjoyed kicking you while you're down. So not everyone loves the plan of rebuilding the walls. But Nehemiah doesn't listen to them. And he inspires the people to rise up and build, to strengthen their hands. And the reason why Nehemiah is so confident that this thing is going to be successful is that he is constantly turning to God. He is constantly relying on God. He is constantly in prayer. He knows that this isn't just his little project. This isn't just his little hobby that he thought he wanted to do. He knows that this is a mission that God has given him to do. So they start building. Now last week we had some old pictures up here. Some were five years old, some were ten years old, some were twenty years old. Many of the people in those pictures are no longer here for various reasons. Many of the people in those pictures are still here after all these years. And as we looked at those pictures, it became really clear that as we see the faces in those pictures, as we see the pictures of the kids who grew up in this church and are now off serving God in other places, it became really clear early on that, you know what? God has clearly built something here in the past. And God is still building something here right now. And he's going to continue building something here in the future. And the beauty of it is that all of us are being invited to participate. All of us are being invited to strengthen our hands and to rise up and build. And be a part of the thing that God is building here. And that's the invitation that's extended to you and to me. So that brings us to where we are today. We're done with Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. We're jumping into Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4. 
But before we do that, before we get into our text, I'm going to pray really quickly, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you that all of your scripture is God-breathed, that you breathe life into it, that it is inspired. God, thank you that we can read from it, that we can learn from it, that we can grow from it, that it can hold us accountable, that it can encourage us. Thank you that it does all these things for us. And God, I pray that as we read your word today, we will be open to what it is that you may be saying to us as individuals and to us as a church. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he died on the cross for our sins, that we might be reconciled to you. We love you. We give you the glory in all that we say and in all that we do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4. I'm not going to read chapter 3. And if you look at chapter 3, you'll probably be glad that I'm not reading chapter 3. Because Nehemiah chapter 3 is just a big list of names. There's a few little details in there about a few things that people are doing and who's doing what and who's serving where. But for the most part, Nehemiah chapter 3 is just a big list of names. It would be an absolute train wreck if I tried to pronounce all of these names correctly. So we're not going to read the chapter. But it's one of those chapters that you come across and you read and you hear, now wait a minute, all scripture is supposed to be good for something, it's supposed to help me grow, it's supposed to help me mature. How in the world is a chapter full of names going to help me do anything? How is that going to help me become a better follower of Christ? How is that going to encourage me during a time of hardship? Well, chances are it's probably not going to encourage you during a time of hardship. But this chapter still has a point, and there's still something that you can get out of it. And the point is that as you read this chapter, as you read all these names you'll notice an incredible amount of diversity in all of the people who are being a part of this project, who are a part of this rebuilding effort. Nehemiah says that there's perfumers. He says that there's merchants. He says that there's goldsmiths. There's people in the upper class. There's people in the lower class. One guy even brings all of his daughters into it. It's a family affair, the rebuilding of this wall. All these people are helping in this project. All of these people have a role to play, and they have very little in common. But the one thing they have in common, all of these people rebuilding the wall, is that they all are God's people, and they all love Jerusalem, and they want Jerusalem to glorify God. They don't want to let Jerusalem sit there as a mark of shame for God's people. It's the one thing they all have in common. It's the one thing that brings them all together. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 20. In that passage, Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul's basically saying that you know, the only thing that the people at the church in Corinth all have in common is that they're all baptized in the same body of Christ, that they all drink of the same spirit. In the same way, the one thing that all the people in Jerusalem had in common was that they were all part of God's people, part of God's nation. And that's the only thing they had to have in common to work together. 
And the same goes for the church in Corinth, and the same goes for the church here in Fishers. We all have different personalities. We all have different senses of humor. We all have different interests. We all have different priorities. We're all in different stages of life. Some of us are in the upper class. Some of us are in the middle class. Some of us are in the lower class. And that's okay. We are all different in our own little ways. But the one thing that we have in common is that we all know Christ. That we are invited to serve Christ. That we are invited to rise up and build here at Prairie View. To strengthen our hands. And that's really the only thing we need to have in common. That's the only common ground we have to have in the first place. To serve together. To build together. To be a part of this thing that God is building here. Pick back up in that 1 Corinthians passage, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul says that you've got all kinds of different individual members that make up a human body. You've got eyes, you've got ears, you've got feet, you've got hands, you've got all these different parts, and each one of them has a different role to play. Each one of them is different, and yet you have to have every single one of them for the body to truly function to its full potential. In the same way, I thoroughly believe that every single one of us here at Prairie View, we're a part of this body, and we have some way in which God expects us to contribute. We have some skill, we have some gift that God has given us that we might be the only one in this church who has that gift. And what that means is that if every single one of us has a gift, if every single one of us has a skill, if every single one of us has some role to play then that means that every single one of us is needed. Every single one of us. If you are a committed part of this church, if you consider Prairie View your church home, you should expect to serve in some shape, form, or fashion. In some way. Whether you're good with kids, serve in Kid City. There's a meeting on October 27th specifically about that if you're interested. If you're not very social, then well, you can pick up a plate and you can help pass communion. You can serve on the green team. You can serve in lots of other ways. You can make coffee before the service starts. If you're musically talented, you can serve on the worship team. If you're a good speaker, you can look into maybe trying to do some communion meditations. If you're a good teacher, think about leading a small group. If you have a talent, if you have a skill, and I guarantee you you do because God has given you talents and skills, then you are expected to use those talents and use those skills here in this body. And if you aren't serving in some way, you're doing a disservice to this church and you're doing a disservice to yourself. Because Christ did not die so that we could sit back and say, yes, I believe this stuff. And, you know, I can't wait until I get to heaven. But until then, until I die, I guess I just have to sit here and wait. Well, any day now. No, it's not about that at all. When we come to faith in Christ... 
We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, as Paul would say in Ephesians. We are expected to serve, and we are given the privilege and the joy of serving alongside fellow followers of Christ, serving in the kingdom, being a part of what God is building here at Prairie View. So I would encourage you, if you don't have a place in which you're serving, if you don't have a place in which you're volunteering, I'm not asking you to be here every single day of the week. I'm not asking you to be here every single time the doors are open. But I'm asking you that if you are a committed part of this church, if you consider this your church family, find a way to serve. I guarantee you there are opportunities for you to do it. So, turn back to Nehemiah chapter 4. Now that we're done with Nehemiah chapter 3, looking at all these people who were helping in the rebuilding efforts, all these people who had these different skills and different abilities, pick up in chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. You just picture all of them laughing at the Jews as they're rebuilding. You have these people who have calloused hands and cut up palms and they're tired and they're cramping and their back hurts and yet you have these enemies sitting back and pointing and laughing at them as they rebuild. How do you think they're going to respond? How do you think Nehemiah is going to respond? The threat is, the opposition is, that you know what? You'll never be able to handle this on your own. You will never be able to complete this thing. It's impossible. It's too big for you. And even if you do complete it, when a fox jumps on the wall, it's just going to fall down. Even if you do complete it, your work is pointless. The second an enemy comes, the wall is going down. It will be a waste of time. Well, look at how Nehemiah responds in verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. We should know by now, already in this series, that any time Nehemiah encounters opposition, any time Nehemiah encounters something that he knows he can't handle on his own, he is not scared to turn to God. When he heard the news about the city, what did he do? He prayed. As he's standing before the king, what does he do? He prays. And now in the midst of the rebuilding, when the opposition comes, Nehemiah once again turns to God. Now, you look at the prayer. It's a pretty harsh prayer. Nehemiah says, God, I hope you give these guys what they deserve. I hope that you'll get payback on these guys because they're not just insulting me, God. They're insulting you because this is your project. Nehemiah doesn't pull any punches. He definitely vents his anger and his frustration to God. But after that, what does he do? He leaves it in God's hands. He doesn't take it into his own hands. He doesn't try to come up with some witty comeback to Sanballat and Tobiah. 
he trusts that, you know what? I'm putting this in God's hands, and we're going to keep working. And so they do. And sure enough, before you know it, the wall isn't very tall yet, but it's connected. And that's a step in the right direction. It's not very tall. It probably won't protect you from much, but at least there aren't any weak spots left. They took the opposition, they gave it to God, and they kept building. If you were here at Prairie View earlier in the summer, we had an incident with one of our Prairie View Facebook pages where someone who didn't really seem to like Prairie View for some reason, we never found out for sure who it was or why it was that they were doing it, but for whatever reason, they decided to get into a Prairie View Facebook page and say some really slanderous things about our church and about our elders and about Jeff. And in a weird way, I was kind of sitting back and I was thinking, oh man, what are they going to say about me? They never said anything about me. I get left out of even the bad stuff. But they never said anything about me, but they said all these slanderous things about our church. And there were moments where I was thinking and I was telling Olivia, you know what? Heads are going to roll. I'm going to find out who did this, and we are going to find out why they did it, and they're going to pay for it. And there were a few times where Olivia had to talk me off the ledge a little bit because I was angry. But we never overreacted. We never tried to get revenge. We did a few little measures we could to try and get the situation resolved on our end. But then we gave it to God, and we focused on just doing what we are called to do here. And sure enough, the problem just went away. We haven't had any issues ever since. How are you going to respond to opposition? To what God is building here and to what God is building in your life? Maybe you're a parent and you're trying to raise your kids in a way that you believe honors God. And so maybe you have stricter rules than the people next to you. And your friends oppose you and they say that you're too strict. They say that you're way too straight-laced. You need to loosen up a little bit. Your kids are going to be weirdos if you continue raising them like this. Well, guess what? If that's the opposition that you're getting, give it over to God. Give it to God. Pray about it. And if you believe that's what God is calling you to do, if you believe that's how God is calling you to raise your kids, give it to him and keep on doing it. Keep working. Maybe you're one of those kids. You're in high school. And you're facing all the opposition around you to do the things that your typical high school kid does, senior year. Maybe if you're a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you're tempted to do some things with before marriage that you shouldn't do. Maybe you're tempted to go out and party a little bit the way that you know God probably wouldn't want you to do that. Well, guess what? Don't give in to it. Don't give in to the opposition. Trust that you're following God. Give the issue to God. And if that means that you're sitting at home on a Friday night, then so be it. Keep working on what God has given you to work on. Keep following God. Keep striving to accomplish the mission that he has given you. Maybe you're in a job situation where you feel like the only way that you can advance, the only way that you can ever get ahead, the only way you can get that promotion is if you somehow do some things that are a little bit less than honest, a little bit unethical. And when you don't do them, your coworkers say the same things they say to those parents. They say, you're just too straight-laced. You're too lame. You're a goody-two-shoes. You're never going to advance if you're not willing to cut some corners. Don't give in. Give the problem to God. Stand up against the opposition. And keep working on what you believe God's given you. Keep focusing on the mission that God has given you. Don't let the opposition 
get into your heads. However, at the same time, that does tend to happen. It's really easy to say, well, you know what, I'm not going to let the opposition get to me, but sometimes it's just kind of hard to do that. Well, the same can be said for the Israelites. In verses 7 and 8, we read that Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and now you have another group called the Ashdodites, they are still opposing this building. Even though they kept on working, even though the wall was connected, the enemies aren't given up quite yet. They still don't want to see this wall completed. And not to mention, you now have enemies literally surrounding Jerusalem. North, south, east, and west. Everywhere you look, if you're Nehemiah, there's opposition coming at you. So what's he going to do? Well, verse 10. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So the threats start getting into the people's minds just a little bit. Really, they're empty threats because Sanballat and Tobiah, they wouldn't have the nerve to actually attack Jerusalem. After all, Nehemiah got all the proper paperwork from the king. He got all the proper authorization. But the threats still get in their minds. They're still a little bit worried. So how does Nehemiah keep these people motivated? How does he make sure that they're not just going to give in to the opposition? Well, he tells them, you know what? What we're building, what God is building here, it's worth defending. Give it to God. Keep working. But you know what? Don't be scared to defend what God is building here. Don't be scared to stand up for it. Don't just roll over and die because what God is building here is worth it. It's worth fighting for. Don't be afraid of them. Don't give in. Well, it pays off. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Another failed attempt by the enemies to prevent the work from going on. And the reason it failed is because Nehemiah is constantly turning to God. And he knows that this project is something that God is interested in. It's not his hobby. It's not just his project. It's God's thing. Pick up in verse 19. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah knows that God is in this thing. That they're not alone in these rebuilding efforts. That this rebuilding is not just contingent upon the strength of their hands. That God is behind it. And that God will not let it fail. And that God will fight for them. 
Look at Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. A psalm that Nehemiah may have been familiar with. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Look at verse 23, closing out Nehemiah chapter 4. So neither I nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They're constantly watching. They're serving as those watchmen that the psalmist talked about in 127. And the reason they're doing it, the reason they're staying up all night, the reason they're giving so much to this project is because they know that it isn't in vain. That God is watching over this city. That God has a plan for this city. That God is behind them on this. And the opposition will not win. No matter what threats they throw at the people, no matter what kind of plans they hatch in their own little minds, no matter what kind of intimidation tricks they try, they know that this plan, it's going to go forward. And their enemies' plans, even though they're surrounded, they won't win. God will fight for us. God is in this thing. And I thoroughly believe that God is in this thing here at Prairie View. And I believe that God will fight for us. Flip over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. In verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. It's easy for just about anybody to say in any kind of conflict that, you know what, God's on my side. God's on my side in this issue. Well, here's the thing. The reason I say that about Prairie View is that Jesus is our foundation. That we are building on that rock. We're not building on the latest, greatest, big building. We're not building upon the latest, greatest ministry fads. We're not building upon having the nicest mailers to send out to the community around us. We are building on Christ. That's the foundation that we build upon. And as long as we keep that as the foundation then we can be confident that God will fight for us. And this isn't just our project. This isn't just our hobby. This isn't just our little venture that God is in this thing. And I am confident that as you continue building your faith on Christ, as you continue trusting more in Christ every day, you'll be building on the rock too. And when the opposition comes... When the rains come and the winds come and the floods come, that house will not fall. Don't build upon the sand. Don't build upon the sand of trying to be a good person. Don't build upon the sand of trying to somehow earn your favor with God. Build upon the rock of what Jesus has already done, not on the sand of what you can do. Build on that rock, and that house will not fall. 
Keep Jesus as your foundation. And as you do that, the opposition can come, and that's okay. God will fight for us. Build your faith on Christ. And I pray that you will be a part of serving here at Prairie View as we build this church on that foundation as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that the rock of our salvation is not built on the sand of efforts to be a good moral person. Our salvation is not built on the sand of being at church enough, checking enough boxes, saying enough good things, praying enough, confessing enough. God, our salvation is not built on that sand. Our salvation and our faith are built on the rock that is your son. It's built on the rock of what he did on the cross. It's built on the rock of his shed blood and his broken body for us. And God, I know that opposition will come. Opposition comes to us individually. It comes to us as a church. But God, that opposition won't win. As long as we keep you as the foundation, we know that you'll fight for us. We know that you'll watch over us. We know that you'll look out for us. So God, I pray that we will continue building upon you, that we will constantly look to you the way Nehemiah did, that we will serve with joy and realize the privilege that we've been given as we're invited to rise up and build and to strengthen our hands. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you're building here at this church. Thank you for what you're building in each of our lives individually. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like to talk to one of our elders about becoming a follower of Christ, if you've built your life on things that you know are just sand, you know that your life is going to crumble because you haven't built it on Christ, and you want to build it on that rock, on that foundation, Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room during our last song. Feel free to talk to them if you have prayer requests. Feel free to talk to them if you have questions about our church as well. Let's go ahead and stand for this last song. Come on, church. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand all of the ground. Sinking sand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Hey. Darkness. Sun. 